0: good things do happen if you just keep going like you know sometimes I say like people who people who fail are just the people who gave up (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's like absolutely true in a way Um, and that was true to my experience in the sport like uh, that I just you know you just keep doing your job day in day out there's so many like this in every race there's only one winner right so like to one iron man win there's a gazillion failures or not wins, right um depending on how you want to frame it or learning experiences so i think like that can be learned in sport more than in other endeavors like if you think of like in school like technically everybody could get an a you, you might be competing for like the best in your class or something but it's not quite the same like everybody it's not an environment where everybody can see can Sorry, where everyone can succeed. Like in sport, there's a winner. (laughs) And I think that like sort of it teaches you a lot. It teaches you to handle failure really well, too.
1: Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Sarah Gross. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Live Feisty Media, a progressive media outlet aimed at empowering new perspectives in triathlon and beyond. The company empowers these new perspectives through the production of podcasts, written content, and videos. Prior to founding Live Feisty, Sarah was a professional triathlete for 13 years, mainly focusing on long course triathlon and Ironman events. Her triathlon career accolades include winning the 2014 Ironman Brazil and the 2014 Ironman North American Championships, being named the Canadian Long Course Athlete of the Year in 2008, and compiling 20 top 5 Ironman finishes around the world. Sarah also holds a Ph.D. in ancient history and religion with her dissertation in the field of women's history. She continues her main passion about women's history today, and in addition to the work she does with Live Feisty, Sarah is also the co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. In this interview, we get into Sarah's experience growing up in the United Arab Emirates, her passion and studies in women's history, her pro-triathlon career, and of course, Live Feisty Media. And so, without further ado, my interview with Sarah Gross. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Chase.
1: So let's start this off at the beginning. You grew up in both Canada and Dubai, right?
0: Yeah, close. So um, we moved to United Arab Emirates when I was 13. Okay. So I went to high school there. And it wasn't I, I, sometimes I say Dubai, I think that might even be on my Wikipedia page and I've never like got anyone to change it or anything. Um, but it's, uh, it was actually like it's this small town in, in inland from Abu Dhabi, like in Abu Dhabi province. So like, not only was it Dubai before anybody knew what Dubai was, but it was also this like tiny town with like one other Canadian family that lived there. <laughs> so, wow. so yeah, it was, a, it was an experience for sure.
1: Wow. Okay, so thirteen, you moved there from Canada. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What prompted the move?
0: Um, my dad. Because my dad got a job there. He was he worked in education and he became the director of of all things a women's college because like all their education is separated, between um, okay. men and women, the higher education. So, um, yeah, he got a job there as the director of a college, and then eventually um, became part of the process of like building up secondary education in United Arab Emirates across all the, the provinces.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. So how hard was it for you to move from Canada to like a place and culture that's probably very different, like in the UA, United Arab Emirates?
0: Yeah, it, that's a good question, um, it was, that part was really, really hard. So, and like 13, I think for most people is a super awkward age anyway. Um, and so it. It was, it actually ended up being like a first year that was really, really difficult, where I did nothing but beg to go home, like have long distance phone bills that my parents wanted to kill me for. Um, (laughs) I would, you know, I almost moved back to Canada to live with one of my friends and and her family. Uh, So it was, it was rough. Like, just because it's a time in, in, I think, most people's lives where, like, you're, you're struggling to be understood by the other people around you anyway, and to figure out who you are, and then to just be thrown into an environment where, like, literally, there was probably no one, there was about 30 people in my class at school, um, and there was probably very few that were from the same country like there were maybe two people from India, two people from Egypt, but like everybody was literally from a different country. Most of them Arab countries, um, mm-hmm. and Asian countries. And then like a random, you know, one girl from England, one girl from Australia, one girl from Finland, like, random. <laughs> um, so like it, yeah. And then the second year actually, uh, that I was there was amazing. Right. Because like once I adapted, it was a completely, um, great environment to grow up in. And, um, it was totally different then, and I learned so much. And it it sort of taught me so much about um, other cultures and being around different people and learning to get along <laughs> in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think like I eventually adjusted, but that first year was was hell.
1: Yeah. So I would imagine then the school was taught and the classes were taught in English and and all that.
0: Yeah. Although I did have one chemistry teacher who, if he. If someone asked a question if one of the arab students asked a question he would answer in arabic it used to drive me nuts but yeah for the most <laughs> part uh in english yeah
1: yeah were you able to learn any arabic while you were there
0: um it's funny because i used to understand arabic fairly well after a while um but that's kind of god now it was more um i didn't intentionally learn it at all so um it was more just like i could understand what people were saying around me um i wish i still could but i don't have that anymore
1: right okay and so the UAE the UAE and well in particular Dubai is known for being nowadays a really extravagant and kind of ultra modern city.
0: Mm-hmm. Like what was
1: it like back then?
0: Um I think in a way we kind of watched it become that. Like the Dubai that I went back and visited when I was on the um Bahrain team uh was completely different to the Dubai that uh that we like that I knew. Um so yeah, that's, it's actually an interesting, it's, it's also like, it's, Dubai is kind of, how would I categorize it? It's a little bit like Miami or something, right? Like you can do, like, it's a very open city. You can do whatever you want. You can wear whatever you want. There's like, they found ways, like, for example, they're not allowed to bet on, um, on like holy land, like on their land, they're not allowed to okay. get, like it's part of like the Muslim religion. So they literally built an island, right? To build a con- casino on. So it was like casino oh, island. Interesting. And then like, they like found a w- ways round to do all the things that, <laughs> that anybody <laughs> wants to do. Um, and so, yeah, that was, and now it's just like this big modern international city, but yeah, it, it became that over time for sure.
1: Okay. Okay, cool. And what sports did you play uh, growing up?
0: Ooh, um, so I guess I was a soccer player in Canada. Uh, and then when we moved to the Middle East, there was hardly the level of, there was girls' sport in school, but it, the level wasn't very high. So I know there was like a handful of us who could play pretty well. So we used to just do like muck around in anything. I had a PE teacher who uh, was a rugby player. She was from Scotland. She taught us all to play rugby. That's something I wasn't taught in school. So mm-hmm. we did some fun things, but like that's when I started to take up running and swimming because I could do it on my own. So oh, okay. Wasn't, like if I previous prior to that, I'd been on soccer teams, basketball teams, volleyball teams, stuff like that. So you're dependent with the level of play is dependent on the other people around you. Um, but swimming and and running, I could get better at on my own. So I, that's when I started to do those sports.
1: Interesting. So maybe if the move to Dubai never happened, it's potentially possible. You would have never gotten into triathlon.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. Like that's how, that's sort of how I see it. Cause a lot of the um, girls that I've been playing soccer with in Canada got scholarships to play soccer at, at us universities. So like for a while I felt like I had missed out on that path, you know, um, but I, I just ended up with a different path that that may have been better. Who knows?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did your parents encourage an active lifestyle?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think if they were active. Yeah, I think like my dad was active himself. I remember him playing squash and I don't know what, lifting weights sometimes. Um, but yeah, they definitely like took my sister and I to sports and a lot. Like you know those parents who like take you to try everything. I think i tried yeah ten sports or whatever before we finally settled on soccer so okay uh, yeah they were they were good
1: okay that's good and i guess overall what was the biggest shock for you when you moved to the uae
0: wow i should have i, <laughs> I should have prepared for this question um ooh, i think the biggest i think the biggest shock okay I know the answer to this. I think the biggest shock was going from somewhere like Canada where where, um, we're a little bit socialist and our ways of thinking are more community oriented, you know, like we wait in orderly lines for things (laughs) like at the supermarket (laughs) and stuff um, to a society that's like very much built on um, and very much racialized in terms of social classes. Right. So I like, so it was very shocking to see entire classes of people from certain countries doing mostly one job that were workers jobs, for example. And of course there were exceptions, you know, to, to these, to some of these rules, but I had never been in a place that was so, so like the the local Arabs were the top of the top rung, you know, and as white people, we did pretty well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then, you know, there was like tons and tons of workers like building right from India, Bangladesh, a lot of different, these countries. Right. And I, that it was not my experience to have social class and race so closely tied together. Um, so that like, as a child or like a young adult was like really shocking to me to, watch and to just because you know like we intrinsically know that like people are capable of so many things like someone's capability is not based on their their racial identity right so yeah um, that was kind of like hard to see and and or see people being almost like you felt like they're being taken advantage of to build these big cities and and stuff so i think that yeah that's how i would answer that question
1: okay okay interesting and the Middle East region, and you know, I'm sure you know this is obviously known for having some of the most draconian restrictions placed on women. Was living in the UAE like? Do you think that's where your passion for women's history really kicked in, or maybe like the seed was planted during that time?
0: Um, I don't think I would say that. Actually, um, it's an interesting question. I I think the seed for me was definitely planted in prior to that, like as a as a kid in Canada, observing that like athletes and leaders were mostly male. So that was like part of my childhood experience. And I also experienced myself, like I wanted to be an athlete, you know, from a young age and I, th- I thought I was a leader. <laughs> um, so it was, I was having trouble like identifying with what I saw out in the world and what I, who I felt I was. So that started well before I went to the Middle East. Actually, interestingly, um, in terms of being in the Middle East, I it, it helped me understand a little more how like women find power in different ways. Right. So um, if you, um, if you don't have like, say um, typically after going to high school, women would get married or they might go to college and then get married in the middle East, that would be like their path, but it was always ending in marriage children for the most part okay. um, and, and staying at home and raising those children. Um, and so but what I saw was like how women learned in that environment to... to, And I'm talking about local Emirati women, just so we're clear. Because there's other just tons of other cultures and tons of parts of the Middle East where things are completely different. So I just want to be clear. But um, they c- gained power like in the home in different ways. Like those women ran those homes like they were in control, right? Because people take power where they can get it, right, typically. So even though like they had... I, I observe women having ways of getting their way um, that, were, that I hadn't seen before in other, in other places. Um, so yeah, that is an interesting and good for me to observe too, to go, oh, hey, like it's not um, seeing Arab women or Muslim women as oppressed is not really an accurate way to, because um, to people are still people and they do whatever they can to get what they need and want.
1: Sure. Okay. Interesting. And so do you end up going to college back in Canada?
0: Yeah. So then I went, uh, yeah, then I came back to Canada. I did my undergrad and my master's in Ontario. Yeah.
1: Okay. And what did you study?
0: Um, Okay. I studied, I started, actually I started in physics and math, which is kind of hilarious now. Um, and then in my second year, I remember like it was the second week of second year and I was in like some kind of advanced physics, who knows what class. Um, and I was just looking at the board and the professor was like, I'm not doing this. And I just laughed and I, um, <laughs> I, went to, <laughs> I went to the religious studies department. And so I studied uh, world religions. So I started studying like Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, um, Islam. So I found that much more interesting.
1: Okay, and and why and why the world world religions specifically?
0: I don't know. I think at the time, like I don't think I understood what I was choosing, um, to be honest. Um, but I think that at the time I had had these experiences of traveling, right, and I observed that like people ardently believed different things in different parts of the world and tended to think that they were right. Um, so I. Yeah, I just I guess I just something I had an interest in um and wanted to learn about. So that was really the perspective. It was more like if if I had been able to put words to it, you know, I might have chosen something slightly different like I might have chosen um sociology or psychology or or something more traditional, but because mm-hmm. I was like looking at religion and going, oh, and you end up studying a little bit of all those things, right? Uh, anthropology. Um, so that's probably why I enjoyed it um, and why I chose it, but yeah.
1: Okay. And, and with that, what did you think you wanted to do for a career long-term while you're in college?
0: Oh ma'am. I don't think I thought, I think at the time, to- at the time I had advice given to me that if you do something that you, enjoy like study something you enjoy and then and then you'll end up in the right place so i just kind of chose world religions and went that direction um but i think eventually i ended up thinking i was going to be a professor and teach
1: okay and i guess shifting gears a little here did you do any athletics while in college
0: yeah i did um the first year In my first year, I was on the swim team. I was the slowest, well, maybe the second slowest person on the swim team. (laughs) Um, And then, let's see. Yeah, eventually I ended up, like, when I went to do my PhD in Scotland, I was, like, a founding member of the triathlon club there. So I think I kind of, like, worked my way into a little bit of, like, after swimming, a little bit. I always ran, like, just distances. I didn't, like, run. I didn't run track or anything. But um, Okay. I would run and then I, yeah, and then I bought a bike and, um, we did, did triathlon a lot when I was in Scotland.
1: Okay. Did you enjoy your time on the swim team?
0: Yes and no, it was a bit of a like old school coaching environment, you know? Um, the, I, the entire year went by and I had, and I was one of the slowest swimmers and nobody helped me with my swim technique. Right. Which is funny if you think about that, like in a college swim program right now like how we focus so much on technique and triathlon great um nobody and so if we weren't making the turnaround times down in our lane like they just didn't care they just left us you know um (laughs) yeah it was a bit of a weird environment but it was i mean it was fun because of course you have like the team and the camaraderie and, and all of those aspects of it that i really enjoyed um but from like a coaching uh program perspective it was not great
1: huh so, like, what were they focused on then?
0: Mostly the people who were fast enough to win things. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, like, kind of makes sense in a way, and like, that's I like, call it like old school a little bit, like when we used mm-hmm. to, you know, like some people would sit on the bench in team sports, and other people got to play, right? And and so it was, it took a unique coach to like get those people on the bench up to the level of the other people who were playing. Right. right? Um, so that's, I kind of felt like a benched swimmer who just showed up for practice and, and did the work, but never got any help or advice.
1: Okay. Interesting. And so with your religious or your studies in, in religion, um, like how does that evolve like through college? Like do you though do you then go to get your master's? Like, um, like, do you want to get your PhD after? Like, what was your thought process through that?
0: Yeah, I stayed. So I stayed. I was at Queen's University in Ontario and I stayed in the same department because I really liked the religious studies department there because it was, um, there were like all different people from all different walks of life, right? So there were like, um, at the time the United Church was the only church that um, ordained gays and lesbians. So we had a lot of like, like folks trying to be ordained in the church um and they were like you know buddhist nuns from thailand like (laughs) there was like just this random collection of people people who were just kind of interested like spiritual and interested in it and so uh i found it i think that's probably why i found a home there because i'd been used to being in these environments with lots of different people from different places um so maybe that's why i liked it so much and then eventually i i wanted to study i actually realized i wanted to study history um i had written a couple like big history papers as part of my master's and realized that i loved that direction so in order to stick with history like i couldn't i wasn't going to go back and get a history degree right so what Mm -hmm. i did was end up studying like women's history in the judeo-christian context um and then that's what i did for my phd so um that's how I ended up like, so then, then you're looking at, you're doing more traditional history type stuff, like literally looking at like, um, like tombstones and what they say on them, um, pots from the ancient world to try to figure okay. out like how people cooked or um, ask new questions around um, what women were doing in certain contexts. So those, I very much started asking history related questions um, and then took that direction for my PhD.
1: Okay, and what does women's history in the Judeo-Christian context
0: mean? (laughs) That's good. That's a good memory. That was that was a lot of words. Um, So, what does that mean? Okay, so when we're talking about women's history, like we're talking about um, asking questions in a different way. So, like of of any part of history, right? So, typically, history has been written mostly by men, right? And then it also has been studied mostly by men. So like, it's like, and so men talk about what men do, right? Which you can't blame them. That's what people do. they like talk, they see, talk about what people like them did. So there's like, it's about wars mostly and Kings and what the upper class was doing. And mm-hmm. like, you don't have much deviation from that. Um, so there was a pretty big movement. Like I, this is like, now this is like the nineties, early two thousands to ask different questions about what different people were doing in history, right? Like what were the women doing? <laughs> well, how do we know? Um, and there's not a lot of information out there because women didn't write things themselves typically. And the few that did were um, from very, like upper classes or were literally queens, <laughs> you know, and top princesses <laughs> taught to write. Um, and so uh, you have to get really creative about how you figure out what people were doing. So that's kind of the act of doing women's history, especially in the ancient world. Um, and then in terms of the religious piece, I I asked the question around how religious beliefs um, affect affected women's freedoms in different communities. So I was looking in the, in the Mediterranean, the Middle East and kind of going, okay, what were like, if a woman was um, came from a Jewish tradition or an early Christian tradition or a Greek tradition, um, would... That change did that change how she what she was able to do and how many freedoms she had in her life? Um, okay, so that was a question that I asked as my thesis, because it for a PhD like the pressure is that like you have to like make a contribution to human knowledge. <laughs> I'm okay, air quotes right now, but <laughs> and so <laughs> that's actually like how do you study something that no one else has ever studied? So you end up with these really like tight precise questions about um, about like really specific things. So sure. those are my specific questions.
1: Okay. Interesting. And that leads to my next question. Um, in your bio, it mentions that you're passionate about the need to make sure that women figure as often and as highly as men on the pages of our history textbooks. Can you expand on this passion a little and why you're passionate about it?
0: That's interesting. Yeah. That's how, like, that's where that passion translates over into like some of the my focus on um, women's issues in, in triathlon and sport in general, right? Is that, um, that same thing. I think, you know, like, if that answer is really simple. Like women are 50% of the population, right? And through most of history, we don't know what they were doing. So, and, and as like, as girls, as the girls in school learning, right? We're not, like, we're not taught those things. There's no, there's no one to look to. Like historically, what did our people do? I don't know. What did our gender do? I don't know, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of work to be done to figure out to like figure out that history, right? And I'm sure in the multiple years since I was since I was working in academia that there's been lots of people answering those questions.
1: Okay, and so getting into triathlon now, when do you start competing regularly, like in triathlon?
0: Oh. I think, like, around the time, and like, 2003, like, I was about 25 or so when I decided that I wanted to be good at triathlon, and for me, that kind of meant maybe going to a local race and winning my age group, and I was in Scotland at the time, and because I, um, I didn't see it coming, but because Scotland's small, um, that meant that, like, that I I trained harder and I started to like win little local races and stuff like that, which made me think I could be good. So I, yeah, from about then and this, the the path wasn't that long then to actually um, racing as a pro in those days, you literally like wrote to a race organizer. and was like, Hey, I won these local races. Can I race as a pro in your race? Like (laughs) the system was pretty funny. So, yeah. um, Yeah. So then in 2004, I started racing as a pro, but I was probably like, I was still doing a PhD, but I was able to train, you know, 25 hours a week, which was enough to get me what I needed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what, what was it about triathlon that like attracted you to the sport?
0: Ooh, I think, um, There's a, when I was in, in university in in Canada, there's a race. It's one of like our oldest races in Canada. It's called the K-Town Tri. And I think at the time there were like, I signed in the elite athletes actually. And, and I remember cause Simon Whitfield signed in with me who later went on to win the first Olympic gold medal. Um, there were other elite athletes who I then later competed against who I signed in at this race when I volunteered, um, But I, 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 and then I say to watch the race after I signed the the athletes in and I think there were like eight women or something. There were like 200 people in this race and there were so few women. And every time I saw a woman come out of the water, like and get on her bike, I was just like cheering like crazy. The whole crowd would go nuts. Right. Um, (laughs) And like, this is really cool. Like, first of all, it's like a really cool sport and it's hard. Right. And like, the women doing it at that time seemed super inspirational to me. This is like 1998 or something. Um, And so I, that's when I sort of thought I want to do this. You know, I already, like I already have two of the sports in my arsenal and, um, Mm -hmm. and it looks really cool and it's, it's challenging.
1: Yeah. The two sports being swimming and running. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so did you work your way up to the long distance races or did you just like immediately jump to like iron distance?
0: I worked my way up a little bit, but it was a pretty short curve. So, um, I, like I said, like when I was in Scotland and decided I wanted to be good at triathlon, I started training harder. I did some local shorter races. Um, I went and started training with a national team. They were all focused on Olympic stream, you know? Um, but I always had in my head, I wanted to do Ironman. So like probably within two years, I was like doing Ironman. Like I went to my first Ironman as a pro on the start line. Um, but I had had all those experiences. Like I was already training with the national team. So that made sense. Um, in that way, but I never had like an Olympic dream, you know? Um, Okay. And I didn't really ever do short courses as a, as an elite athlete. Mm -hmm.
1: More so Ironman than Olympics.
0: Yeah. 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 And I always loved Ironman right? Like I watched the, I don't know. I think a lot of us got into Ironman that way of like watching the NBC coverage of Kona, and mm-hmm. being like, I want to do this. <laughs> um, so that was me for sure.
1: Yeah. Interesting. And what's your, what's your best sport out of the three?
0: Mm. I don't think I, I wasn't that good at any of them, to be honest. Um, I, I was, <laughs> pr- I was pretty good at running off the bike, like strength running. Right. So, okay. I, cause I wasn't really a fast, fast runner, but I could run like a low three, like a three hundred four marathon, like pretty consistently, um, mm-hmm off the bike and I was strong enough and I also didn't get injured that often. So that helped with that consistency piece. So yeah, if I was going to say it'd say running, but I don't want anyone to think I was a fast runner, you know, like a three hour marathon is not fast <laughs> <laughs> in relative terms. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Okay. And what changed in 2014 to get you over the hump to win your first two full Ironman triathlons? Like was it a change in training mindset, like a combination of things?
0: Yeah, I think honestly, I think um, there's probably a couple of factors, but um, the one that stands out for me is that I like a couple of years prior had figured out I was celiac. Um,
1: oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, and I'd been tra- I'd been I finished between second and fifth at I don't know over twenty Ironmans by that point, right? So there's there, there is a factor of like a roll of the dice, like if you come second at an Ironman it's like, but one person being there that you would have won. (laughs) Um, or I've had races where like I had a puncture and then finished two minutes down like, you know, I think we all have those things. Right. So like I had enough of those second and third places to realize that like I could win, I just had to wait for my time. And then, Mm -hmm. and then I figured out that I was celiac and I just kind of knew that that was going to get me like the what that one to 3% performance increase that was going to put me even in a better position to try to win um and so then i yeah then i ended up winning two in one year um and but after that i like i was like 38 years old i was done (laughs) so (laughs) um so it was pretty like after that i was like oh thank god i finally won really like make it back to that level but um yeah i think i would put like a there's a few factors, but I think really figuring out, like when you're looking for those tiny increments of performance, like something like that, like having, um, food, not absor- absorbing properly in your gut. Like that was like something that just like, changed my training completely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I-, I can imagine. And for people listening, celiac, that's gluten in- intolerance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how many years in total did you compete as a pro?
0: So my first pro race was in 2003, the end of 2003. So, um, that was back when, like, it was when nice was still a long course race before it was Ironman. That's my first pro race. And then my last pro race, probably 2015. no 2016. Yeah. So I still trained in 2015. Oh, I had two bike crashes in 2015. And then in 2016, Oh, I was on the Bahrain team. Um, and I had a lot of like, had some media contract stuff. It's a PR stuff. I was working with them. Um, and I also had, was contracted to do four half Ironmans. So I just, um, at the, at that point I was just kind of like trying to. Try to, to hold my own in the pro ranks, um, at 40 years old with all these other responsibilities.
1: Right. Right. What's your favorite Ironman race and why?
0: Um, okay, I a couple of things come to mind right away. I loved uh, Western Australia and Bustleton, uh, partially because I had an amazing homestay and the people. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like Bustleton's a nice place, but it probably wouldn't be most people's first choice of um, of destinations, right? Um, so, but I just like loved that trip to Australia in general. Um, then. Uh, Ironman Austria was really great and fun. And I've
1: heard really, really good things about, about Ironman Austria.
0: Mm Hmm. Racing in Europe, right? What the things they say about people lining the street and cheering are absolutely true. Um, I remember in Austria, there was a, there was a square where we ran into like through a big stone arch into the square where there were like cafes and shops lining it. And then you just did this kind of turnaround in the square and came back out. And I was, I think I finished fourth. I think I was running in fourth most of the time, but like, so I was literally like the fourth women, woman that like people would have seen running and probably only the like hundredth person that they could, that could come through there. So I'm just guessing numbers here, but, um, and like all the people in the cafes, like they'd, like, they'd see, like they saw me and they're like, ah, and then they, and then they start <laughs> like, and then everybody stands up and start cheering. And like that was super fun. They're so supportive. Um, and yeah, and Ironman Canada, like when it was in Penticton, it was supposed to come back this year, but it got canceled. Of course, um, mm-hmm. that's that course, like this, the one loop bike ride on that course is amazing. And it's like my home, kind of my home race here in BC. So right. it's really pretty too. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And what are your, so what are your biggest takeaways or lessons learned from all those years competing as a pro triathlete?
0: Ooh, um, Good question. I think really like my, I am just going to sound silly, but like I learned to endure, you know, um, and that like good things can happen. If Like the good things do happen if you just keep going. Like, you know, sometimes I say like people who, people who fail are just the people who gave up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's like absolutely true in a way. Um, and that was true to my experience in the sport, like uh, that I just, you know, you just keep doing your job day in, day out. There's so many – like, this in every race, there's only one winner, right? So, like, to one Ironman win, there's a gazillion failures or not wins, right. Um, depending on how you want to frame it, or learning experiences. So, I think, like, that can be learned in sport more than in other endeavors. Like, if you think of, like, in school, like, technically, everybody could get an A. right? You're not, like – you, you might be competing for like the best in your class or something, but it's not quite the same. Like everybody, it's not an environment where everybody can see, can, can, sorry, where everyone can succeed. Like in sport, there's a winner. Right? <laughs> and I think that like sort of, it teaches you a lot. It teaches you to handle failure really well too, because like, it, yeah, just like for the same reasons I just said, like, yeah, almost everyone fails and only one person wins. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And so what, drove you to, to stop competing professionally?
0: Um, I think like mostly I just didn't want to do it anymore. I was just done. Um, Mm -hmm. and I had, you know, at the time I had other focuses, I had started working on media stuff. Um, we were pushing for equal spots in Kona for the pro women. Um, and that was like, uh, I was dealing with a lot of journalists with that. Um, so I just had like other priorities. So I just shifted focus. And also like, I didn't, I, I had gone until, like I say, like 2015, 2016, I was kind of just holding on and going through the motions in terms of my training. So I really had like squeezed all the water out of that rock kind of thing. Like I was really done. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I didn't have anything left. Like I didn't have any questions about whether it was time to retire. It was definitely Mm -hmm. time.
1: Okay. And well, um, what was the. I guess the deal for lack of a better term with the the Kona slots.
0: Oh, so in, um, in 2015, um, like they, they changed the way that the pros qualify for Kona, like in 2011, I think. Um, and prior to that, there had been way more pros and basically like anyone who deserved to be there got there. And I remember going to Kona with like 88 women pros, um, and like very rich and deep field. Um, And for the men and the women, you know, and there might've been more men, but we didn't think about it because everyone who deserved to be there qualified on both sides, there wasn't really an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when they put in the new system, um, it was, it ended up being essentially after the automatic qualifiers, 35 women got to go and 50 pro men got to go. Um, And even though there's equal prize money, so it's like, giving less women a chance to win that prize money. Um, And so, and the reason they did that is because um, it was proportional to the number of women in the pro field versus like the the proportional to the number who actually participate and then proportional to the total number of women in the sport. But like, I don't know any other sport that allows, that does that. Like it says, okay, how many, it's not like how many women play tennis? in total, okay, that's going to be how we decide how many women go to Wimbledon. Actually, if they did it that way, there'd probably be more women than men in Wimbledon, (laughs) but (laughs) but like, it doesn't make sense. Right. Or like you go to the Olympics and you don't go just because there's only a certain number of women participating in a sport. Um, If you flipped it in like men's gymnastics, if you chose like the number of men who get to go to the Olympics for gymnastics in relation to uh, in proportion to the number of men who do gymnastics, like you'd send hardly there'd be like a huge amount of women there and not that many men in the olympics and gymnastics right. but that's <laughs> not how we choose people to do sport like that's not how we treat elite athletes just in yeah. general so we just like basically we, first we asked iron man and andrew messick like can we have equal slots they said no and then we went to like the media and did a big social media push and kind of like kicked up a lot of dirt um in a way that like most companies would kind of go okay yeah uh we're, you know like if you um if you tweet like at an airline they'll like respond to you right away because <laughs> of your complaint like we tweeted at iron man like two million times and they didn't respond to our complaint um and so yeah we still don't have equal slots but we did get a lot of media attention like okay uh, we were in sports illustrated on that like in the print edition like we were i was interviewed by forbes magazine like we got like some mainstream mm-hmm. um, that's cool stuff, but no change, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. And so when, when does, when do you get the inspiration to start life or live feisty media?
0: Oh, um, I, so when I first retired, I worked for a media startup called Wisp Sports and they cover women's sport. Uh, And then I, I, once I worked for them for a year, 18 months, I realized that they had a terrible business plan and I want, I could, do better if I started my own thing. Um, so I just kept the iron women podcast, which we're still producing. Um, okay. we just crossed a half a million lessons on the iron women podcast in three years. So,
1: Oh, awesome. Um, Congrats.
0: Thanks. Yeah. I'm, like quite happy about that. I'm not on the podcast, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, uh, uh, so I just started, I started with iron women and um, managed to get some sponsors for it and just like built it out from there. So I've, I've been, doing, been doing the media thing for about three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did that answer your question? Sorry, I just went on a little side tangent.
1: Yeah, yeah no, it, uh, it did. Um, okay. so, so why the name Live Feisty?
0: Oh, good question. Um, yeah. So I, I did a whole like word association thing with like loads of different people. I had like sticky notes all over, like hundreds of them. Um, and we eventually circled it on this word feisty as being kind of like central or like being um, a lot of people were relating to it or a lot of my audience uh, or a potential audience. And so then, um, so the, and then like feisty media actually had, there's a couple other like micro organizations called feisty media. Um, so then I was like, oh, why don't we be like, be feisty or, you know, and we eventually landed on live feisty. I think at the time there was like lots of things being called, like named that way, like be something or live something or, you know, like live strong (laughs) or like stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So I, that's why I chose live feisty. Um, now I'm thinking of trying to go back and make it just feisty media, but yeah, that's how we got there.
1: Okay. Interesting. And so, maybe just for the people listening, provide an overview of what feisty live feisty media is today
0: um so yeah, we've grown and diversified quite a lot so we now we produce six podcasts um a lot of it is in the the realm of like women in sport or um we're trying to reach like underrepresented groups in sport too um so we have the Iron Women podcast where we interview the pro women, Sarah true. And I, I don't know if your, your are you yeah. Sarah true, but we do a podcast called if we were Riding." that's um, just like, we literally talk to each other as if we were riding, <laughs> So <laughs> it's like pretty off the coffin random. Um, but I love it. It's so fun. And then we have like a gravel podcast called girls gone gravel. Um, I can't even remember our podcast anymore. Um, we're, we're, um,
1: is that like gravel grind related gravel? Yeah. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Like gravel riding, like the, like, you know, how like gravel basically in the cycling world is like taking off. Yeah. Um, it's, it's about, it's basically we like interview women or like pro ex pro cyclists or p- anyone who's like jumping into the gravel space. And a lot of people are during COVID too. So mm-hmm. um, it's a really fun, uh, podcast and one of the co-hosts actually is the race organizer for Dirty Kansas, which I think is no longer called that, but it's like the Kona of, um, or not the race organizer, but she works with the race organization for Dirty Kansas, the gravel world. If 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 your listeners know the gravel world, they'll know that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway, we have some super fun projects um, with the podcast, So we do a lot of social media and social video, um, and we just kind of like rogue media our way into the triathlon world and into women's sport in general. Um, And then we also do like marketing, social media, marketing, marketing and business development for um, online brands. So a lot like in the endurance space. So we like help brands grow or help them build an online business too, um, which has been, uh, has grown quite a lot during COVID as well. So we sort of have that, like it's more like an agency or a place where we make partnerships and grow businesses. Yeah. So
1: Okay. Yeah, it is. It's cool. So what's your ultimate vision for Live Feisty?
0: Ooh, I, I want to, um, I basically want to take, take over, <laughs> complete takeover. I want to like take over that me- the space and media and content creation of like, it's kind of a feisty empowered community. So we're like, it, we intentionally are like, we're women led, but we're not necessarily like creating content just for women if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. um, like where our tagline is like for the unapologetically fit and feisty. Um, And I think that kind of, that kind of talks, speaks to who we want, who our audience is and who we're creating content for. Um, And I think that like sport and the active community has like an underserved group in the middle there between somewhere between like sports like elite sports like we're, we're not doing sports coverage so we're not covering like um basketball for example or soccer um we're not just doing sports coverage but we're also not like shape magazine and like how to get fit or losing weight on a diet or some of the other things that tend right. to um, be big in like the women's active type space so in the middle ground there like the you know, active women who are already feeling empowered and outdoing their thing and we're like making content for that group. Um Mm -hmm. so and like just to like really be known in that space of like that we're like a media organization that's um that reaches that demographic. Okay. Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It does. It does. Okay. Awesome. And so getting these last um handful of questions here. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation?
0: Ooh, five years. Um, I think I would love to have built out our. Um, so we have like some partnerships uh, where uh, where we've built like f- some fairly big online businesses and been able to to um, create courses and and communities in places where there's no where there's been a a gap. So like we partnered with Dr. Stacey Sims, who's an exercise physiologist who works specifically on women's physiology and performance. And so, um, but we've been able to like take her research and her message and get it out to tons and tons of people. Um, So I think I'd like to have like done that. And now we're, um, say we're branching out right now to a new space in terms of um, menopause and older women being active, right? And like, nobody's talking about that right? And no, but there's no content and there's no information for folks. So like, and, and that's like just another, or there's the gravel space we just talked about, um, where there's really no other women's communities and content being created. So I'd love to be able to say that we had like reached a bunch of different communities um, and continue to create like successful businesses there too, because that makes it sustainable, right? Like, sure, um, it's not about making money really, it's about like sustaining the content and being able to um, keep communities together and talking to each other and keep information flowing. So yeah, I'd love to say we built out, I don't know, like 10 big like kind of business pillars with different communities that, that are looking for information and community.
1: Awesome. What is your daily routine?
0: Oh man. Um, okay. Now, it it varies, but like I tend to get up and do a couple hours work, say from six to eight. Depends if I have to get my daughter to school if she's with me or not. And then I go to CrossFit usually for an hour or two from nine to eleven or so. Um, some okay. days, other days I'll just run um, if I don't feel like. I mean, I, I can't go to CrossFit every day. Um, and, then, and then I'll just come back and work usually either, either until, say, four or five if, if my kid's here, or sometimes I'll work till like seven and then just like maybe hang out with friends or have dinner or whatever. Um, yeah, pretty easy.
1: Okay. And so as is the name of the podcast, The Driving Force Podcast, mm-hmm. what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life?
0: I think, um, making social change, uh, for, for women in particular and kind of like changing the climate and changing the narrative around like who gets to be an athlete, who gets to be an elite athlete, who's a leader, like back to like, we talked about like childhood and what, and when I observed those things happening in our culture, very young. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's my driving force. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so, lastly, here before we wrap up, what advice or words of wisdom around staying committed to your passions would you like to leave the people listening?
0: It's a hard question because that's that commitment to passion comes super naturally to me, and I think that's partially about figuring out like your right passion, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's um, so that's a kind of about being true to yourself. Right, so I think that right. that's where you start. like it's like if you're, you can be honest and true to yourself about what what it is you want to do, um, then you have no problem. then the resistance, at least your self resistance is low because you want to accomplish the things more than you care about whether you're you have to get up early when the alarm goes off or um, whether you have to like do something that someone else might consider a sacrifice um, doesn't really necessarily feel like a sacrifice to me because I'm like just getting shit done um, to get to the end goal so. Um, so yeah, I guess like it would start with being true to yourself and, and naming the right goal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's a great place to end too. Sarah, thanks again for coming on. This was great.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Chase. It was uh, good to talk to you.
1: Yeah. Where can people go to find you online?
0: Ooh. Okay. Go to, uh, well on Instagram, I'm Sarah dot I think. Um, don't go to my website because it's really old um, <laughs> and <laughs> livefeisty is um, at Live Feisty Media on Instagram or livefeisty.com and you can see all the podcasts there um, and all the things that we're doing all the other brands that we have too if you like if you want to find the gravel brand or something just go there and it's, it should be pretty clear
1: awesome and you all can also visit my website chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time